from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartal in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is, a brand new kid to show biz, with knowledge I persevere. But find out, do me a favor. 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 Let me in here. we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. This podcast is brought to you by the Snot Burglar. Hey everybody, Eric P. here. Don't you hate it when snot gets all crazy and messes your life up? Well, now you don't have to worry about it. Just go to my website, fbesp.org, and click the Snot Burglar banner. It's easy, and you can link it with your Facebook account. Actually, it's best if you use your Isolator account. I need to put a link for the website for Isolator. If you don't have an account for that, you got to check it out. Say goodbye to annoying snot accidents at work or on the go. Enter the promo code SNOTBURGLER into snotburglar.com for a free two-month trial. And now, on with the show. I got stats here, people. I finally hooked up with this progress website service called Blueberry. B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. I suppose that's pronounced Blueberry. Um, <laughs> the rural juror, uh, yeah, and I got all sorts of information about who's downloading my show and everything. I thought I might have like 30 or 40 listeners if I was really lucky. Turns out the last show, which is the only one I have stats on, uh, number 69, Algorithmic Terrorism, I had 150 downloads for that show. Now, I want to assume that at least 20 of those are me checking the links to make sure it works and, you know, checking stuff out on my website. But even if we assume that 30 of those are either me or somebody else just screwing around, because it's 120 unique downloads, that's incredibly uh, rewarding to know that 100 people... Well, it's rewarding for me. I think it must be torture. You people are masochists. What is up with you? Um, but I'm just fascinated to see all these statistics and numbers. Uh, and for a free service, Blueberry does a pretty good job of breaking it down. Uh, 57 people were using Windows. 40 were using Macintosh. iTunes was the number one client. Google Chrome came in with 33 downloads after iTunes is 47. But this was the most interesting thing. And in the top countries, 65 people downloaded in the U.S. and 32 were in the U.K. I assumed that it was going to be heavier toward the U.K. since I know a number of my listeners are uh, sort of picking up from the veteran gamers, but I'm heartened to see that a number of people in the U.S. are listening as well. So, hello, uh, people in the U.S. And to my Canadian listeners, all five of you, I'd like to say, I don't know, what do they say in Canada? Hello, I suppose they say in Canada. Four listeners in Malaysia. That's interesting. Mexico, three. Buenos dias. And Australia, g'day. Uh, There's three people there. Three in India, namaste. Or uh, I don't even know if that's a real thing or it's just what weirdo hippie white people who have been to India for a week say. Uh, Two in India, excuse me, three in India, two in Italy, two in Sweden, and five others. Let's see if I click on full list. Oh, it's only available to the premium users. Damn you, Blueberry. Trying to get my money. Uh, 
Anyway, I just thought that was very interesting to see the breakdown and to know finally how many people are actually listening. Well, how many people downloaded? I can't say these people actually listened because maybe they didn't. I don't know. For all I know, they just downloaded and then they threw it away, which is probably the best use of your time, but what? Current events, what's going on in the world? Eesh, another massacre after Aurora. There's one in w Milwaukee at a Sikh temple. Uh, this dude who was a member of a neo-Nazi skinhead band went into a Sikh temple and he killed like 10 people. It freaking sucks. Uh, it's such a tragedy. And, uh, you know, my heart goes out, of course, to the community there and the people who lost loved ones. And I will repeat what I said after the Aurora Massacre, which is we need some actual gun control in this country. And I'm not saying take away all the guns. I'm not one of these people who's like, nobody should ever have guns. Although I will agree with a number of people I've heard recently who point out that, you know, the Second Amendment is largely, as Lisa Simpson said, the Second Amendment is a holdover from the revolutionary era. It has no meaning today. And Homer goes, you couldn't be more wrong, Lisa. If I didn't have this gun, the Queen of England could waltz in here anytime she wants and start pushing you around. Do you want that? Well, do you? And people are like, oh, I need a gun to protect myself from the government. Yeah, that worked real well at, at Waco, didn't it? And, and Ruby Ridge, right? Because guns kept those people safe from the evil government oppressors. And don't get me wrong, I understand that government, you know, I, I have reason to be suspicious of the government, but I mean... Do you know about the move bombing? Do you know the, if the government wants to come get you, they're going to come get you whether you have a gun or not. Now, that said, I'm not trying to say that nobody should have guns, but, I mean, we have almost no restrictions on who can get guns. The dude in Aurora was stockpiling, like, 1,600 rounds that he bought legally over the Internet, didn't he? Ah, it's so annoying. Anyway, moving on to something even more uh, devastating and horrifying. Mitt Romney picked Paul Ryan as his running mate. Ah! <laughs> and those of us in Wisconsin uh, know intimately how amusing Paul Ryan is as a person. Uh, I found this article on U.S. News & World Report called 10 Things You Didn't Know About Paul Ryan. And uh, for one thing, because his father, uh, he's the, first of all, the, the, the Ryan's, He's the fifth generation of his family to live in Janesville, Wisconsin, which Janesville doesn't seem like the type of place you'd want to live in for five generations, but that's just me. And to be honest, I've never actually spent any time in Janesville, so I shouldn't say that. If you live in Janesville, please don't be angry, although I don't know how you got a computer if you live in Janesville. Anyway, um, his father had the name Paul as well, so he was known as Paul Davis or as the nickname P. D, Paul Davis, right? P.D. But it was often mistaken for P.D., which, according to this, caused Ryan to dislike the nickname. So, P.D. Ryan and Mitt Romney. There you go. P.D. and Mitt. There's, the, there's a fun uh, bumper sticker for you. Um, yeah, and this is interesting because Paul Ryan once called Social Security a Ponzi scheme, but after his father died when Paul Ryan was only 16 years old, uh, he received Social Security survivor benefits in order to attend college. So, hmm, isn't that interesting? Somebody who benefited from a government program who now says that government program should be abolished. Huh, they call it kicking away the ladder. Um, 
Yeah, he was elected to Congress in 1998, and he's this rabid, lunatic right wing. The Paul Ryan budget was the one that was submitted in, I guess it was 2008 for the first time, and then again, like last year, I don't really know the dates. But a whole bunch of Catholic bishops got together and said, no, this is wrong. This is going to hurt poor people, and that's not what Jesus taught us to do. Uh, so, yeah, that's really messed up. And and I I don't know, is this going to help Mitt Romney or not? Who knows? It's it's hard to tell. Polling data is so obscure, and and all I know is, uh, Paul Ryan's a bad person. He's not a bad person. He's not a bad person. I don't hate him. I hate everything he does and says. Okay, fine. Anyway, uh, moving on. Syria continues to just be a craziness. Um, uh, yeah. First of all, uh, Obama signs an order supporting Syrian rebels from the Guardian. Uh, Barack Obama has signed a secret order authorizing U.S. support for Syrian rebels seeking to overthrow the Assad government. Sources familiar with the matter have told Reuters, although apparently they are staying away from actually arming the rebels. Uh, a government source acknowledged that under provisions of the pres- presidential finding, the U.S. was collaborating with a secret command center operated by Turkey and its allies. Last week, uh, Reuters reported that along with Saudi Arabia and Qatar, Turkey had established a secret base near the Syrian border to help direct military and communication support to Assad's opponents. Meanwhile, Kofi Annan, the former Secretary General of the UN, had been leading this diplomatic effort to try to resolve things, and he recently quit. And he said, it's clear that a bunch of people aren't willing to work on this, and never mind my paraphrasing, let me read from the article, and this is from the New York Times. Frustrated by the seemingly intractable Syrian conflict, Kofi Annan announced his resignation on Thursday as the special peace envoy of the United Nations and the Arab League, throwing new doubts on whether a diplomatic solution is even possible. In an announcement tinged with bitterness and regret, Mr. Annan said he could no longer do the job, blaming his decision on what he described as Syrian government intransigence, increasing militants by Syrian rebels, and the failure of a divided Security Council to rally forcefully behind his efforts. Although the Security Council supported Mr. Anand's efforts, two of its permanent members with veto power, Russia and China, opposed any additional coercive measures that they feared could lead to a change of government imposed by outside powers, foreign military intervention, or both. Russia's foreign ministry said in a message posted on its Twitter account that it would vote against the General Assembly resolution on Syria, calling it unfairly biased against the Syrian government. Now, that's the end of the quoting of the article. First of all, the Sir- the Russian foreign ministry said in a message posted on its Twitter account, is that really how foreign ministries are communicating with each other now? I can't wait till the... Because didn't Norway say, like, ooh, a random citizen can have control of our government Twitter feed now? It's going to eventually be like some 13-year-old girl is like, OMG, Assad is like so hot. Why are you people in the U.S. trying to hate on him? Like, I think Assad and Chris Brown should like hang out and they can make some awesome music. They can beat me up and commit genocide against me anytime. Uh, dude, Assad isn't actually guilty of genocide yet. No, it's just massive killing of innocent civilians. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to unfairly tarnish the image of Assad. Um, secondly, this is what these superpowers do all the time, including the United States. Whenever you look at the U.S. voting record at the U.N. on East Timor, it's the exact same thing. The superpowers have something to gain by keeping a hideous dictator in power somewhere in the world. So the United Nations, representing the opinion of the entire world, says this country needs to stop doing this thing. And one of the superpowers, or in this case two, stands stands up and goes, no, don't be so hard on that group of people, that government. And it's messed up and it sucks. 
Meanwhile, in Somalia, a comedian who mocked Islamists is shot dead. This is from The Guardian. One of Somalia's most popular comedians, known for his parodies of Islamist mil militants, has been shot dead in the capital, Mogadishu. Abdi Jailani Marshale was reportedly killed shortly after leaving a local radio station where he worked as a drama producer and performer. How messed up is that? And in Egypt, a teacher was arrested for, quote, offending Islam on Facebook. Uh, Bishoy Kamel, a Coptic Christian teacher from the Upper Egyptian Governate of Sohag, was arrested on Monday for sharing cartoons on a Facebook page that allegedly defamed Islamic faith and the Prophet Muhammad. Now, I, I, I'm one of these people who believes in free speech. People should be allowed to make jokes mocking Islam and putting up stuff on Facebook and making fun of Christians and making fun of Jews and making fun of everybody. I think we all need to have a sense of humor and, and all the rest of it. And, and I know some people say, oh, you know, people in the U.S. have this attitude of, of how... Uh, you know, we we nothing is valued more highly than free speech in the United States. So in the UK, uh, the libel laws are a lot more strict. You can't just say whatever you want. Although looking at News of the World and other Rupert Murdoch instruments, you have to wonder how strictly they're enforced. There's some basis for the laws, but who knows how they get around them? Anyway, I guess it's a question of what's in, you know who when they go after who. And Rupert Murdoch's not going to have people going after him because he just bankrolls every politician there is. Anyway, oh, and speaking of crazy things going on in the Middle East, we can't leave it without talking about Mitt Romney. Oh, God. Mitt Romney, what a weirdo. He says, so he talked about, I think I mentioned this last week, he talked about, oh, Palestinians don't do very well because uh, blah, blah, culture. And people were like, you're an idiot. And the AP said, hey, you have the numbers totally wrong. I talked about that last week. Remember that? Remember that? Yeah, that was awesome. Dude, Awesome. Uh, oh my god, that was such an awesome podcast you did last week. I listened to it while I was reading the Twitter feed of the Russian Foreign Embassy. Um, anyway, Rom Mitt Romney did this double down thing for the National Review. It's called Culture Does Matter. And he had this whole thing about, I was not wrong, I'm correct, and culture, bleh. During my recent trip to, I wish I could do a Mitt Romney accent. I don't think I can. During my, he didn't even have an accent. I mean, he has an obvious, everyone has an accent. But his accent is like, like white, mayonnaise on white bread. Which, I gotta be honest, I actually enjoy mayonnaise on white bread, but whatever. Uh, during my recent trip to Israel, I had suggested that the choices a society makes about its culture play a role in creating prosperity, and that the significant disparity between Israeli and Palestinian living standards was powerfully influenced by it. In some quarters, that comment became the subject of controversy. But what exactly accounts for prosperity, if not culture? Oh, I don't know. It could be a freaking military occupation! You think? Mitt! Ah. Uh. In the case of the United States, it is a particular kind of culture that has made us the greatest economic power in the history of the earth. It's also protected infant industries. You should read Hajun Chang. It's also a whole collection of government policies and intra-government policies. And as Michael Moore points out in Capitalism, a Love Story, we bomb the hell out of Germany and Japan, which are our two largest industrial competitors after the Second World War. And we structure the global economy through the IMF and the World Bank to basically supremacize us so that we could defeat the Russians. And then once the Russians were defeated, well, we still have to protect the United States against everything. 
Like the United States, the state of Israel has a culture that is based upon individual freedom and the rule of law, Mitt Romney says. Now, I would say that the UN Security Council would probably disagree about that rule of law bit. There are a whole lot of things, and I'll give you a link to this foreign policy journal piece, which talks about all the ways in which the Israeli government has violated UN Security Council resolutions. So don't give me this hogwash about the U.S. and Israel having a culture based on rule of law, because if you're talking about international law, I say, ha! And again, we can talk about East Timor as a case study and how that's not true. Uh, and then the nuns, I told you how the Catholic bishops were all up in Paul Ryan's grill. Well, these nuns on a bus, this group called Nuns on a Bus, uh, they, they've gone around riding on a bus. Imagine that. They, wouldn't it be awesome if it was nuns on a bus, but then they actually rode around on motorcycles? And they're like, what happened to your bus? It broke down. Uh... They challenged Mitt Romney. They've been criticizing him. You're, you're turning your back on the poor. You want to cut things that help the poor. Blah, 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 blah. We believe in helping the poor. What kind of weirdo Catholics are those? Um, but they, they challenged him to spend a day with them. The group behind the nuns on a bus tour that highlighted the ill effects of the House Republican budget in congressional districts across the country is now setting its sights on the party's presidential candidate, inviting Mitt Romney to spend a day with the nuns to learn about the plight of America's poor citizens. I wonder if he'll do this or not. Hmm, I don't know. He might be willing to take that challenge. Running for president is nothing if not a, an experiment and doing risky things that could actually have some tangential relationship to the pursuit of truth and not just trying to get money and power. <laughs> Network, a, ca a national Catholic social justice lobby, is inviting Romney to, quote, spend a day with Catholic sisters who work every day to meet the needs of struggling families in their communities. According to a release, the group is specifically targeting Romney a day after his campaign released a misleading ad about welfare reform that sister Simone Campbell, Network's executive director, said, quote, demonizes families in poverty, end quote, and shows Romney's, quote, ignorance about the challenges the poor face in America. Quote, reading recent... Recent advertisements and statements from the campaign of Governor Romney demonize families in poverty and reflect woeful ignorance about the challenges faced by tens of millions of American families in these tough economic times, quote, stated Sister Simone Campbell. Quote, we are all God's children and all equal in God's eyes. Efforts to divide us by class or score political points at the expense of the most vulnerable of our brothers and sisters reveal the worst side of our country's politics. Amen, sister. And usually I say that in a kind of familial way, like, yeah, brother and sister, all right. But that's actually amen, sister. Uh, and this, of course, all goes back to when Ronald Reagan originally said that, oh, there's these welfare queens driving Cadillacs and collecting a million dollars of welfare every day and blah, blah. And people were like, can you give us the name of one of these people? And he's like, oh, I don't know. And it, people went looking and they found out it was a total lie and it was all a bunch of hogwash. But people believe it. And part of the reason why people believe it, especially voters, especially Republican voters, i.e. white people, is that, oh, no, what are you talking about? Herman Cain was black, Alan Keyes, ugh, whatever. The vast majority of Republican voters are white, all right? Let's just be honest, okay? And the only reason I mention that is because these attacks on welfare recipients are all about race baiting. Never mind the fact that the majority of the people who actually receive welfare are white. The idea, the thought is that if we demonize welfare victims, it's an us versus them type of thing, and we can get white voters by trying to make them angry at people who are getting money unfairly. These people... 
People, your taxes are high because of because of illegal immigrants. That's right, illegal immigrants. Like on The Simpsons, right? And it's all a bunch of hooey trying to get us to squabble amongst each other so that Wall Street can keep running to the bank. And you'll notice that it was only when uh, Barack Obama became a viable political candidate in 2008 that we actually heard any discussion of white voters ever. We never heard about white voters before that. As soon as Obama comes into play, especially when he's up against Hillary Clinton, suddenly the, what will white voters do? Well, I mean, it's not an illegitimate question, but insofar as you never thought, I mean, that goes to show that white people usually don't ever think of themselves as being white. And that's a major shortcoming in white people because we never stop to think like, oh, wait, how does that affect the way I see the world? Because usually what white people do is they see their own perspective as just being the unbiased perspective. But of course, everybody has an individual perspective, just as everybody has an accent. There's that great scene in For Your Consideration where the woman's interviewing Ricky Gervais and she goes, can you speak without your accent? And he's like, what do you mean? Do an American accent? She's like, just speak normal. That's how a lot of white people see themselves. It's like, I, I'm just normal. I'm just a normal guy. So that's, yeah, I don't know how I got off on that tangent. It doesn't matter. I learned something uh, from Fox News by way of Stephen Colbert. How weird is that? Uh, Antonin Scalia actually said that the Second Amendment leaves open the possibility of gun control legislation. This is from Fox News. If it were from Think Progress or Truth Out, that would be one thing. I'd be like, well, I want to go see what the original quote said. And I don't know that Scalia actually would have said that. But if you're, Fox News is not going to unfavorably quote Scalia in terms of gun control. That seems like the last thing Fox News would ever do. So strange as it may seem, I actually believe this thing from Fox News. You never thought you'd hear me say that. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia said Sunday, the Second Amendment leaves open the possibility of gun control legislation, adding to what has become a slow-boiling debate on the issue since the Colorado movie theater massacre earlier this month. Scalia, one of the high court's most conservative justices, said on Fox News Sunday that the majority opinion in the landmark 2008 case of District of Columbia v. Heller stated the extent of gun ownership, quote, will have to be decided in future cases. That's good news, because it means that if even Antonin Scalia says that maybe we could have some gun control legislation, I think that's a good sign. Maybe we should push for it. Let's do it. Brady Center, we are better than this. All that. Oh, that's the next story is my link to Brady Center. The Brady Law requires criminal background checks of gun buyers at federally licensed dealers, but there is a loophole at gun shows and other venues where unlicensed dealers operate. In most states, convicted felons, domestic violence abusers, and those who are dangerously mentally ill can walk into any gun show, flea market, or even log onto the internet and buy weapons from unlicensed sellers, no questions asked. And there's also an interview with the can the president of the Brady campaign, Dan Gross, on the Colbert Report. That was a really interesting interview. You should all watch that. And if you don't know uh, Brady, Bill Brady, I think his name was, uh, he was one of the people protecting Ronald Reagan when he got shot. And Brady got, like, paralyzed for life. He was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And he started this crusade to try to limit who has access to guns. And I think that nobody has more moral authority to say let's cut down on the number of lunatics who have access to guns than a guy who got shot and paralyzed for life by a lunatic with a gun. Don't you think so? I mean, maybe he's someone we ought to listen to in terms of like, hey, this is what happens when lunatics have access to guns. 
And everybody always goes, sorry, this is the last thing I'm going to say about gun control. I'm going to move on. This, everybody always is like, oh, if you, if nobody has, gu- I don't even know how, I'm so mad. The- <laughs> I realize how ridiculous I sound when I'm this mad, so I'm going to try to calm down a little bit, and then I'll be able to think more clearly. Good concept, Mr. P. When, you talk about gun control. People say, if you outlaw guns, only outlaws will have guns. Look, this is more of that false dichotomy of seeing the world as one thing or another, ones and zeros, black and white, simplistic dichotomies. Everybody's a good guy. That dude in Aurora was a good guy until he went in and started massacring people in the movie theater. Does that mean he should have had access to all that weaponry and ammunition? No! He shouldn't have. And, And don't get me wrong, I know that part of it is that he needed access to mental health services and blah 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 but but part of it is also that he had a gun and that he used it to kill people with okay and we can't know who the good guys and who the bad guys are it's not like there's a book with the names of all the bad guys in it and we can just check on it oh look there's a bad guy so what that means in effect is just in the same way that we can't know who's going to drive a car into, into a group of kids we have to check and see, okay, this person's done these things that suggest they might do it. This person doesn't have the common sense to get behind the wheel of an automobile. So, too, should we have the same sort of screening for guns and close that loophole? That's it. No more talk about guns on this show. I promise. I hereby vow. That vow may or might not mean anything because if later on I have something in the show notes, I just go through my show notes in Google Docs here and whatever I have written down, I just start reading that and commenting on it off the cuff, kind of like jazz scat, scat uh, singing, not scat pooping on people. You got to be clear. Thank you, Hannibal Burris. Uh, anyway, yeah, so that's how it works. If I have something about guns later on, I'm going to read it. I'm not going to like censor myself, right? No way, dude. I speak the truth even if I've promised not to. Toronto, please, please. The police, the police in Toronto sued one point for me. I'm still talking about Bloomberg. Toronto police sued for $1.4 million for profiling women. A group of seven protesters from Hamilton, Ontario, are suing Toronto police for $1.4 million, claiming they were unfairly profiled, arrested, and mistreated during the G20 summit. Okay, back up. What's the G20? The G20 is, is, is the group of 20. It used to be the group of seven. It was the G7 for a long time. And then I think China got let in, so it became the group of, of eight, G8. And then now there's this group of 20, which also includes some other countries. I don't know that all the countries, sorry. It's I know that the seven were like United States... France, Great Britain, Russia probably, and a bunch of others. Um, That's a comprehensive... What good information you're getting from this podcast. Anyway, when they meet, it's like the richest economies in the world coming together to decide what's going to happen in the world economy. And a lot of times... These events, like the meetings of the International Monetary Fund, the World Trade Organization, and the World Bank, uh, have been met with these protests of ordinary citizens saying, we want some say in how the world economy functions. And people are often very unhappy with the way that the G20 decides things, because it tends to decide things in a way that benefits, for example, Barclays, so that lets them continue to do the LIBOR criminal elements, criminal element activity uh and 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 the the mayhem and the madness that took place in 2008 and i keep reading predator nation by charles ferguson you've got to read this book people if you really want to know what was going on in the 2008 economic meltdown and who saw it coming here's a hint goldman sachs saw it coming you know how we know that goldman sachs saw it coming because they started betting against lehman brothers and all the other institutions that were about to fail so that they could make some money off the failure of those institutions 
<clears throat> anyway, that's why people were protesting at the G20 summit. <clears throat> Lawyer David Charney served the Toronto Police Service with a 44-page statement of claim on Wednesday outlining a litany of allegations against the police force. Uh, the lawsuit claims his clients were arrested without reason, held for more than 24 hours in a detention center, and in some cases sexually assaulted before they were released without charges. And that's an important piece. The real, they've buried the lead here in just a second. I'll get to that. The, the, but, but the thing about the releasing without charges is very significant because the government is not supposed to detain people without any reason. That's unlawful detention. That's never supposed to happen. But the police, uh, during these protests especially, and anytime they're in a black community, for example, uh, or if they're in a place where people are suspected of being illegal immigrants, they'll often do this, or, you know, a lot of poor neighborhoods of all stripes get this treatment. Uh, the police will go in, and they'll just sort of arrest people, and, and they won't ever charge them with anything, but they'll try to get them to sort of talk about someone doing something illegal. It's it's the same thing they do with the stop and frisk thing in New York City. Like 5% of the people that get stopped and frisked have any contraband whatsoever. But they use that 5% as a justification to say, well, we need to stop and frisk all these people, all especially all these black kids, um, because they're probably engaged in some sort of criminal activity. Well, obviously not if only 5% of the thing people you search have anything on them. Um... Anyway, so that's really bogus. And they do this all the time, and people look at it on the TV or whatever, and they assume, oh, it's anarchist black bloc people trying to burn down McDonald's or Nike. And a lot of times it's not. It's just people protesting. Uh, but even if it, I mean, no, it's, I'm not going to try to defend the anarchist black bloc, because I don't think anarchist black bloc um, serves an important purpose. Now, that said, some people make the argument that we citizens who are being hurt by the institutions of power like the G20 and the IMF and the WTO, we need to raise the stakes of the status quo and make it clear how angry we are and inflict damage on the global power structure so that it recognizes that we're not playing around. Okay, I hear what you're saying. I disagree with that because all that really does, breaking windows and burning down Nike Town or whatever, uh... It, all it does is it really turns public opinion against the movement for social justice and economic democracy because it makes us look like a bunch of cranky, lunatic, you know, rabble-rousers who have no real function except for burning things and smashing stuff. Uh, you, you know, look at Emma Goldman and, and Alexander Berkman. When they attacked Henry Clay Frick, they thought, oh, we're going to incite a rebellion. This is Atentat, this idea of propaganda of the deed. This is going to inspire the workers to rise up. No, it didn't, okay? All it did was there was a worker in Frick's office who was one of the people that subdued uh, Alexander Berkman. So don't give me this stuff about it. it's going to inspire blah, blah. You know what? Revolution's not going to happen unless people have the consciousness to make it last. And even if it did, it would end in a day with twice the repression we have now. So even if you would take it from an anarchist point of view, it doesn't even hold water in that regard. Education first, and then you try to incite something that changes the system. And when I talk about revolution, look, people should know, I'm not trying to hide anything here or double talk. I am a nonviolent anarchist revolutionary, okay? Anarchist in the sense of, I'm sort of an almost anarchist. I believe that people don't need cops to tell them what to do, and I believe that young people should be treated with dignity and respect, and they'll mostly do what you say. And I'm a high school English teacher, so you can't tell me about, oh, that's not a sustainable way to deal with young people. I know it's not totally sustainable. There's a small group of the studentry that I eventually just can't, you know, work with, and I have to send them out of the room once in a while. But you know what? 
most te- a lot of teachers jump to that first. That's an example of my almost anarchism. I believe that we ought to start and do everything we can to avoid the repressive state apparatus, which unfortunately is what most people jump right to. Oh, these people need to be pushed down and struck down and blah, blah. Anyway, moving back to the buried lead of this Toronto police thing. Um, Charney said Toronto police unfairly profiled his clients and arrested them because they appeared to be protesters based on their clothing and physical features, which included women with hairy legs. So, ladies, if you don't feel like shaving this week, guess what? You're a bunch of anarchist terrorist protesters. You're going to get arrested if you go to Toronto. And as Hannibal Burris pointed out, if you go to, I think it was Toronto, where he got Five hundred dollars in tickets for jaywalking and back talking to the police officers. <laughs> French. Eric, you've been talking about economics for like ten minutes now. Why are you just now playing the economic section of the show theme song, which happens to be Cream Casuals Everything Around Me by the Wu-Tang Clan? Well, we're now at the part of the show notes where I have economics in bold type. At Caterpillar, pressing labor while business booms. As you know, the world is in a double-dip global recession right now, but not for Caterpillar. The people who make these enormous tractors and earth movers and, you know, whatever else, uh, they're doing very, very well. I mean, amazingly well. Despite earning a record, and who is this is from the New York Times, despite earning a record $4.9 billion in profit last year, profit 4.9 billion dollars in profit and projecting even better results for 2012 the company is insisting on a six-year wage freeze and a pension freeze for most of the 780 production workers at its factory caterpillar says it needs to keep its labor costs down to ensure its future competitiveness and i am so freaking sick of this we gotta stay competitive nonsense because look if it came with CEO salaries capped at $100,000 and no bonuses ever, then I would, and no stock options and none of other hogwash that lets executives get away with billions while the company crashes and burns. If that were the case, then maybe we could talk about whether this is actually for future competitiveness. No, this is more examples of greed and corporations doing whatever they want unless governments or unions serve as some sort of balance to make sure that they handle their responsibilities. Again, pensions, old people are not buildings. You owe these people something when they retire. And if you're demanding to freeze the pensions, that's just greed. That's part of what you owe these people for delivering $4.9 billion in profit. Who deserves that money? Why do the executives deserve their million-dollar payouts and their stock options and their bonuses while old people who've worked at Caterpillar for 20 years don't deserve anything when they retire? It's absolute... Ah! Meanwhile, uh, there's a nightmare on Wall Street. K-N-I-G-H-T. You see what they did there? Because it's night capital. It's this debacle at night capital. And this comes from the Huffington Post. And I try not to link directly to the Huffington Post because most of what they do is aggregating. They just go to get stuff and blah, blah, blah. But actually, in recent years... 
pretty much since Colbert called them out, I've noticed. Maybe that's a coincidence. I don't know. Uh, they've actually started doing a little bit of actual journalism. So in this case, I'll link right to the Huffington Post, especially because I couldn't find anything else anywhere else about it. Um, there's... There's the latest train wreck, which the Wall Street Journal, ha Journal, Journal, the Wall Street Journal has dubbed it for the win, the nightmare on Wall Street. I'm like a 90-year-old man who doesn't have his dentures in. That's nightmare as in night capital, the New Jersey, the New Jersey trading firm whose trading algorithms went haywire. Would you like to hear somebody reading from the Huffington Post in a comical 90-year-old man dentureless accent? Then tune into the Didactic Syncast, brought to you by the Snot Burglar. <sighs> All right. <laughs> the Wall Street Journal has dubbed it for the win, the nightmare on Wall Street. Ken H. Ken K K N I G H T. That's nightmare as in night capital. The New Jersey trading firm whose trading algorithms went haywire on Wednesday, causing crazy trades in about 150 different stocks and costing the firm $440 million. That reminds me, I got the book Dark Pools that I was talking about last week. So if you were saving up to buy that for me, don't bother. I found it for $10 online. And here's the coolest thing about that. I bought it from this place online called Housing Works Bookstore Cafe. Whatever. Send it to me. $10. bucks. i will take it. It comes with this bookmark, and it turns out I would have been supporting this awesome institution in uh, New York. Housing Works is, it says this on the bookmark, is the most uh, verbose bookmark I've ever gotten. Housing Works is a healing community of people living with and affected by HIV AIDS. Our mission is to end the dual crises of homelessness and AIDS through relentless advocacy, the provision of life-saving services, and entrepreneurial businesses that sustain our efforts. How awesome is that? So I got the book that I wanted to read about high-speed traders, AI bandits, and the threat to the global financial system. Um, and I also got to support a cool institution in New York City that is helping to fight homelessness and AIDS. So rock on. Housing works. And hooray, I got the book. So don't send it to me if you were planning on doing that. I doubt anyone was, but maybe they would. I don't know. Should I start a Kickstarter? Like, buy me 100 books I don't need. Anyway, Knight Capital. Just like that, the company is teetering on the edge of destruction, saying it is, quote, actively pursuing its strategic and financing alternatives, which is PR speak for, holy crap, we need money fast. I love that. Actively pursuing its strategic and financing alternatives. Wouldn't you love to hear somebody do that if they owe bills and money to the... Oh, bills. <sighs> Sometimes my brain works really fast, but my mouth doesn't cooperate, so I end up talking like some sort of 90-year-old man who doesn't have his dentures in. Um, I would love to see a person down at MG&E or, you know, the AT&T office. There's no AT&T office. But sending a note, like, I'm working on getting this money for you. I am actively pursuing my strategic and financing alternatives. The company's stock price has plunged to $3.40, down 67% from two days cl Tuesday's close. Arr! Analysts are talking bankruptcy for Knight Capital. So there you go. And, again, I mean, as always, this is this firm, but... they. It cost the firm $440 million. But don't forget, that's not their money. Where did they get that money from? They probably got it from, like, uh, venture capitalists and, like, hedge fund managers. And where do they get their money from? Your pension plan. The pension plan probably from Caterpillar. And they're like, oh, we need to stay competitive. We need to invest this pension plan. And then they'll invest it in something like Knight Capital. And then it all goes belly up. And it's, oh, no, where did I go? Well, you have no money all of a sudden. And this is what happened with, like, the city of Atlanta or something lost a bunch of money in the LIBOR scandal, didn't they? I don't know. Do you expect me to know these things? <laughs>
Uh, and finally, in the economics file, uh, there's this article that was on Business Week, and it's about this guy named David Siegel. Oh, what a character. You should totally read the whole thing because he is a very interesting individual, and he's the timeshare king, which makes me think of two things. First of all, we used to live in Florida, and we used to get pitches all the time. My family would get all these things about, you can have a free weekend at our timeshare if you come listen to us tell you why you should buy a timeshare. And the timeshare resorts are pretty nice, and... Everybody gives a little bit of money, and you can use it for like a week out of the year. What you know what a timeshare is? Please explain to me what a timeshare is, Eric. I have no idea. Anyway, so this dude, so it makes me. But then timeshare king makes me think of that dude in American Beauty, who's like, I'm the real estate king, and then he's hooking up with uh, whatever her name is, and it's like, who's the king? It's like you're the king. Um. Anyway, the article is the headline is why timeshare king David Siegel thinks he got Bush elected. And he's basically admitting to massive voter fraud here. Quote, I'm not bragging. I'm just stating the fact. I I don't know how this guy talks, but I think he probably sounds a lot like the rich Texan on The Simpsons. I personally got George W. Bush elected, Siegel told me during two days of interviews. I'm not proud of it. I feel like I'm responsible for all the problems in the world. By that, he meant mostly the then deteriorating situation in Iraq. Here is Siegel's account of how he swung the election in Bush's favor. Whenever I saw a negative article about Al Gore, I put it in with the paychecks of my 8,000 employees. I had my managers do a survey on every employee. If they liked Bush, we made them register to vote, but not if they liked Gore. The week before the election, we made 80,000 phone calls through my call center. They were robocalls. On election day, we made sure everyone who was voting for Bush got to the polls. I didn't know he would win by 527 votes. Afterward, we did a survey among the employees to find out who wouldn't have voted otherwise. 1,000 of them said so. So... Okay, there's this big push for efforts to end voter fraud, which there is no voter fraud, because they talk about, oh, immigrants are committing voter fraud, whatever. And The Daily Show did a great piece about how uh, there are like 100 cases over 10 years or something like that. Or maybe it's Colbert. I don't know. It all blurs together in my head. Uh, anyway... But the so there there's almost no voter fraud in the in the U.S. except apparently this guy committed. I mean, is this actually fraud? I guess it's probably not actually fraud, but it sure sounds like undue influence and vote rigging by a very wealthy man. But whatever, I don't know. Is that really fraud? Can you really say that for sure, Arizona? Salon.com had a really interesting piece recently that said, can schools fix our economy? And there's a big thing. I mean, look, okay, okay, so here's where it gets personal, man. We're through the looking glass here, people. Uh, as a teacher, this is the stuff that I live and breathe all the time. And one of the biggest things is, oh, you know, schools are the way out of poverty and uh, – People have to be educated, especially in a post-industrial economy, because they need the knowledge, skills in order to get today's jobs and blah, blah, blah. Um, but you know what? That's always been only part of the story, okay? The reason we had a middle class in the United States for 50 years after World War II was we had this huge boom in industry and manufacturing, which those jobs came with a decent wage, benefits like health care and dental care and that, and pension plans. And uh, those jobs have all gone overseas to countries where they don't have to pay those things, China and wherever, Malaysia or whatever. 
uh, and and the jobs that are supposedly replacing them is you know the majority of the jobs, the post-industrial economy, they're all service sector jobs. So we're talking about like working tech support at some internet startup or, you know, working drive-through fast food, whatever it is. So, and, and those things generally don't come with benefits. They don't come with a pension plan. They don't come with a living wage. So that's sort of the background for this. Okay, now here's the article. In a, a, a report called Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone? Center for Economic and Policy Research Economists John Schmidt and Janelle Jones make a simple but powerful point. Over the last three decades, the workforce in the United States has gotten a lot more educated and productive, but fewer of us have a good job. The standard that Schmidt and Jones set for a good job is pretty basic. Earning the median wage for men of $37,000 a year and having some sort of health insurance and retirement fund at work. Even though the typical American worker is twice as likely to have a college degree than 30 years ago, the share of the workforce that has a good job declined from 27.4% to 24.6%. How can that be? If what we are hearing all the time from the official, you know, business press is, well, today's workers just need to have a skill set and blah, blah, blah. And we've all been doing that. Why haven't more of us gotten these good jobs? It's because, again, the whole thing is a setup. You're, you're, you're not likely to get a very good job unless you have, I guess I feel like the reason I have a good job with benefits and a retirement fund is because I have a union who has fought for those things. And if you don't, you're likely not going to have those things. Um, and the whole thing's a setup. And, and, and this makes it very difficult for me to tell my kids, hey, you better work hard and get those skills for the post-industrial service economy and blah, blah, high tech and yada, yada, because it, the ch chance 75% of you are not going to get a decent job, when you, even when you have those skills. So it's just so disheartening to think about how corrupt the whole thing is and it's it's because it's so easy for these companies to set up over in countries that don't have any minimum wage laws they don't have any environmental regulations they don't have a responsibility to provide any pensions so of course corporations are going to do whatever they can to maximize their profit and externalize the costs it's not our problem once they retire from the company we don't have to give them a pension we don't have to give them anything most of the jobs that will be created in the next decade don't require much of an education. Of the ten, this is the most interesting part of all to me. Of the 10 occupations expected to create the most jobs, eight of them require a high school degree or less. There will be almost 4 million job openings for retail clerks, home health aides, and the like, compared with 1 million for nurses and college professors, the only two jobs in the 10 that require more than a high school degree. Now, don't get me wrong, kids. <laughs> like there's any like 14 year olds listening to this of course you should go to college i mean i believe college is the best thing to do with the four years after high school if for no other reason than because you get to actually spend some time exploring the world and figuring out what it all means pursuing truth but if you're looking for money the, the statistics about what the future is going to bring suggest that college might actually be, as Ted Rawl once said, for suckers. Because if you're going to end up with $100,000 of student loan debt and the jobs that are creating, the, the occupations that are going to create the most jobs are mostly retail clerks and home health aides, which require a high school degree or less, or less, then what are you doing? What what is the purpose of the hundred thousand dollars in debt? And let's not forget that's what sparked Occupy Wall Street. If if 
if the if if there had been massive job openings or god forbid some sort of public works project ah i can't even say it without my eyes burning in pain then there would have never have been an occupy wall street because the people that i am the 99% thing was all about i got all the student loan debt i can't find a job we're getting screwed and the CEOs are smoking dope and playing bridge and investing in these dark pools and losing, exploring their strategic and financial alternatives now. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, uh, and I'm glad to say there's an update for this. The ACLU had this thing that they were telling everybody about. There's this Louisiana school. And every time I hear Louisiana school, I think about that report I talked about a few weeks ago where Diane Ravitch was reporting on the charter schools in New Orleans and how it was like, kids in cubicles watching videotapes about the bible that welcome to school kids here's your cubicle sit down and shut up um anyway this louisiana school is forcing people to take pregnancy tests this is from the aclu in a louisiana public school female students who are suspected of being pregnant are told that they must take a pregnancy test under school policy those who are pregnant or refuse to take the test are kicked out and forced to undergo homeschooling Welcome to Delhi Charter School in Delhi, Louisiana, a school of 600 students that does not believe its female students have a right to education free from discrimination. Um, yeah, now, the, this is a blatant violation of federal law in the U.S. Constitution. Now, I am happy to say that the school has since rescinded this policy. Why? Because of public outrage, okay? And I signed one of those change.org petitions, and I don't have any delusions that they got this email update saying, hey, Delhi Charter School, there's a lot of people on change.org who disagree with your policy, and they went, oh, God, we've got to change it. But you know what? I'm sorry. I, I think that's a small part of it. I really do. Because they changed their policy and, you know, it, it's got to have some kind of impact. I can't believe that there's no connection at all. Now, I'm not going to again, it's not total responsibility, probably 10% or something, but, but it's something. At least it's something. The worst thing in the world is to look at all the things going on in the world and think, oh, there's nothing I can do, okay? And my years working as an activist on behalf of the East Timor Solidarity Movement has proven to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that simply is not true. Things change, and they change because we get involved and we demand that they change. And it happens, all right? So don't believe the hype. Um, meanwhile, there was another, I'm surprised I didn't hear this anywhere else. This is from the examiner.com. It's some news, news source in Ohio. Uh, the head of uh, the Ohio, the Ohio education head, his name is Hefner, Stan W. Hefner. Uh, he resigns at one, uh, two F's, Hugh Hefner only has one F, uh, resigns in the wake of inspector general report. Here's the article. Ohio superintendent of public instruction, Stan W. Hefner submitted his letter of resignation Saturday following a report released recently by the state's inspector general who found that Hefner had subverted, quote, the process of government, end quote, when offered testimony before the legislature in support of a bill that, quote, could ultimately and that could and ultimately did benefit a corporation with which he had entered into an agreement of employment, end quote. What Mr. Hefner didn't tell lawmakers was that he was working for a standardized testing company in Texas when he lobbied the Ohio General Assembly last year on a bill that benefited the company. And I don't really know much about the requirements of who's lobbying the government on behalf of state education departments, with for legislation that goes to benefit standardized testing companies i know that one of the bush sons one of george w and jeb's brothers i think neil bush uh was working for one of these 
major test prep or testing companies. And that's one of, and again, can you prove this was this? No, but is it really a coincidence that his brother's making all this money from these testing companies at the same time that George W. Bush is passing this no child left behind legislation, which causes testing to just shoot through the roof. Now I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm really not. It might be that that's a coincidence. I accept that. Or it might just be that both of them really believe that what we need is a business model of reform in the schools that comes with a lot of testing. And Neil happened to be on the business end of it. And therefore he made a lot of money and George W was in office and he just made it a priority. And everybody always looks at no child left behind. And is like, well, this is the one great thing W Bush can point to. No, it's not. It was a horrible piece of legislation. If for no other reason, because it was an unfunded mandate. Even if you accept that the business model is a good way to proceed with reforming education in this country, it's not. But even if you accept that it is, the the federal government said, do all these things, make all these changes. Everybody has to be totally proficient by 2014. And we all said, okay, can we have some more money for smaller class sizes and better resources? And the government said, ha ha, get to work. So unfunded mandate, if for no other reason why that was a stupid piece of legislation, okay? So don't give me this hogwash about how that's the way the W redeems himself is because of education, ah, education president, blah, blah, blah. No, he's not, okay? And I don't want to hear anybody defending that. But nobody's defending Bush for anything. Hey, don't start humans. this yet. I'm not done with kill my day now. all <laughs> humans. Must kill all humans. Bender, wake up. <clears throat> I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh, listen, Bender, uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. Want to kill all humans? We might actually get done with this under an hour. Uh, in the Killer Robots file, uh, two things about actual robots this week. What about that? And they both have to do with movies. I haven't seen through Total Recall. We saw Dark Knight recently, The Dark Knight Rises. It was okay. I mean, it was good. The stuff at the end, I did not see it coming. I will give him that. Swing. What a twist. Um, but it wasn't nearly as interesting as The Dark Knight. Because, first of all, I think that's because your heroes or your villains aren't as good. Bane? And Bane's all right. I don't really remember him from the comics. On the way home, Diane was like, "Was Bane a big dude in the comics?" And I was like, "I don't really remember ever reading anything about Bane." Now you have to remember, my I don't follow really any comics, especially superheroes. Uh, I mean, I have a pretty decent comics collection, but it's all like Transmetropolitan and a hundred bullets and scalped and all that. Uh, but Batman was the only comic that I ever really pursued with any kind of like vigor and. The, I mean, mostly it was these sort of, well, I, I was going to say these one-shot comics, but they really weren't. I suppose they were runs of the comic. But things like The Dark Knight Returns and The Cult and uh, Longest Halloween and all that, those were the Batman comics that I really got into year one and all that. Uh, so I never really ran into Bane until I think it was I played Dark uh, Arkham Asylum, the video game, and he's in that, but he's a very different character than he is in the movie. So, uh, you know, and the class-based stuff, I don't know. Like, I could see people talking a little bit about class when analyzing that film, but by and large, it's just as... It's an elaborate revenge fantasy and stuff. So I, I don't think there's much to be achieved by talking about class. But what I thought, and I said this to Diane on the way out of the theater, and I, I, I don't know that it, there's a lot here, but part of it makes me feel like the scenes of sort of mob rule in that film are an, another example of Hollywood depicting 
anarchism of any form as being totally unviable and letting mass murderers out of prison and, and just running rampant with inevitable war against the cops and ordinary people have to hide in their homes and all the rest of it. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I know that it's, that's what Bain wanted and it was ruled by the criminal class and all the rest of it. And it's not really fair to say that that it's, I don't think that was an intent of the filmmakers, but what I'm saying is that we have never seen an anarchist hero in the sense of like to the scattered stars or whatever the name of that book is. I saw this really good piece by the uh, Moorcock, Michael Moorcock, the dude who wrote the, uh, the Elric series. And he was talking all about how, you know, Tolkien and Heinlein and even Asimov and others. I mean, most of the science fiction and fantasy that we get tends to be, for lack of a better term, kind of royalist or fascist in its principle, like the idea that there needs to be one person or an oligarchy that can rule us effectively, the king, return of the king, you know, we need to have people, you know, and this idea, and, and, and meanwhile, an, an anarchist science fiction literature would be one that says people have the ability to rule themselves. If you were to read Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy, that's an anarchist book that's a story about people ruling themselves without having to be ruled by any small group of elites or you know imposed oppression from outside so i would love to see uh, what i'm saying i guess is that we haven't ever seen a marge piercy book made into a movie and i would love to see that as sort of a counterweight to this notion that well anybody who came up from the darkest doomiest doomiest that's not a word uh, prison can't ever be up to something good in his plan, but whatever. I, I don't. That's you're overanalyzing things. I know that's what I do. All right, whatever. Moving on. Here's the actual stuff about killer robots. Pixar loving robot builder creates working Wally. Robot hobbyist and builder Mike Senna has spent the last two and a half years bringing to life what once existed only in the hearts of Pixar fans: a full-size and fully functioning version of Wally. Senna of Yorba Linda, California, has already built a working R2-D2 of Star Wars fame. He would bring the robot to visit pediatric cancer patients. But after seeing Wally a few years back, he decided he wanted to try creating something with more emotion. Now, I think R2-D2's got plenty of emotions. I don't know what that's about. But there's no doubt Wally's a very cute robot. And if I were a kid in a cancer ward, I would love to get a visit from Wally. How awesome would that be? There were the usual challenges, of course, determining an accurate scale, configuring the robotics, and so on, but he said attempting to build Wally came with a new type of pressure to get every detail perfect. When things got too stressful, Senna briefly called it quits before jumping back into the project. Talk about a sentence that doesn't merit keeping in the article. What is that at? Nothing. In early 2010, he began spending around 25 hours a week working on the robot, eventually logging between 3,200 and 3,800 hours in all. Very interesting. I don't have any video of the working Wally, so I'm going to have to take the word of newsfeed at time.com, but I think I will take their word for it. Also, from Jason Goller, uh, there's this movie called Robot and Frank that I really want to see because it's about this set in the near future an ex-jewel thief receives a gift from his son, a robot butler programmed to look after him, but soon the two companions try their luck as a heist team. What a ludicrous concept for a movie. I know, but it actually looks kind of good. And part of it is because of the cast. Frank Langella is 
plays Frank. Uh, James Marsden does the voice of the robot. Liv Tyler is in it. Susan Sarandon. Peter, no, sorry, Peter Sarsgaard does the voice of the robot. Uh, so, I mean, it sounds like a decent cast. And it sounds like a ridiculous movie, but it might actually be like fun and interesting or something. I don't need these statistics about the show anymore. So, I don't know. That's all the news on the killer robot front. And I don't really have anything else to say about that. So, let's talk about hip This week, I want to tell you about this group called Left-Handed Scientists. I know almost nothing about them. I was on, I think I was probably on Amazon.com. Shh, don't tell anyone. But that's where I go to get music these days because the local shops, I mean, they have good stuff still. And I still stop by like B-Sides and Exclusive Company. Uh, But by and large, it's cheaper and easier to go on Amazon. So sorry, brick-and-mortar shops. I'm not being a very good, you know, local... There's a name for locavore, is what they call it? I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, I found left-handed scientists one day, and I love it. Their music is kind of weird, and they use all this, like, they use a lot of polysyllabic rhyming, which is a fancy way of saying big words. They talk weird. And, uh, but it's great, and the music's very portentous, and it's all about the apocalypse and stuff, and I have no idea what they're talking about half the time, but... It's it sounds good and it, it you know they got funky rhymes they got good flow uh so and they, I only have one album from them and I don't even know if they have any others but uh this is the so the it's called Kill Your Computer is the name of the album and this is the second track on it called Constructive Destruction here so I'll play this for you you can have a listen what what it's all about here. <laughs> to wouldn't wouldn't that be a good song to set your alarm for in the morning you wake up to the lovely lilting sound Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears stop repenting cause the end of this near but don't panic you can't function if you live in a fear pay attention you gotta listen to here uh, this week's quote comes from Edna St. Vincent Millay. I may have, I hope I didn't do this quote already. I'm not trying to have trouble remembering who I've done and who I haven't done as quote of the week. Uh, anyway, she lived from 1892 to 1950. She was an American poet and playwright. She was the first woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize for poetry. She was also known for her unconventional bohemian lifestyle and her many love affairs. Um, and, and this quote is sort of a paraphrase. She wrote things that were sort of put together by biographers to say this quote. And like a lot of quotes, it's hard to tell where the actual source comes from and did she really say it or not or whatever. But I love the quote, so I'm just going to read it. It's not that life is one damn thing after another. It's the same damn thing over and over. 
How cool is that? Anyway, that's it. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction that I've written and multimedia I've made and lots of other stuff. And the movie about our road trip is probably out by the time you hear this. Uh, check my site, fbesp.org. Uh, it'll be on there uh, somewhere. It'll definitely be on my blog. And you can see the awesome 20-minute film that I've put together with all the cuts it's got it's it's really I know people say like check out my vacation film and everyone goes oh god no but serious I work really hard I spent all last week working on this video and I think it's really going to be entertaining I think people will really enjoy watching it the last one I made from our 2008 trip um, I, I told all my friends at school, uh, you know, teachers I work with, I was like, just check it out. I think you'll like it. It's it's not your average sort of vacation video. And they said, a lot of them said, like, I don't even know any of the people in this video, but I really enjoyed watching it. It's I, I work really hard to make it something people will enjoy watching, even if they have no idea who it is or anything like that, even though I don't care about road movies or whatever. It's just a fun little collection of funny stuff that happened along the way and us doing silly things and good music and it's edited with quick cuts and all this. It's exciting. Check it out out people you gotta watch it it's gonna be i think it's awesome shout outs this week go to reddit user hey look i have a pillow for the very kind feedback on my rachel maddow piece and also jason the movie link i appreciate that and Shinyverse sent me something about how he really enjoyed the last podcast and uh somebody else uh, retweeted about it and i really appreciate all the support thank you everybody for your listening and for getting in touch uh 150 people listen to the last show maybe we can double that this week no whatever that's the ego talking mind over ego stop it piotrowski um, yeah, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or interesting news articles. I can be reached at ESP at FBESP.org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. See, I messed up. Now everybody's expecting me to talk at the end of the show to add a little something funny after the outro, but I got nothing funny to add. There's nothing here. I'm just I'm just talking about nothing. Shut the hell up! Okay.